Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Here we see you, Lord Jesus, with this difficult man, Judas. He seems so wonderful, so proper on the outside to all those around him, but all the way along, Lord, you knew that he was what you called a devil, that he wasn't with you, that he never loved you. Lord, I don't think we will ever understand the depths of pain that he caused you, just simply walking down the road with you, camping out with you, having meals with you, performing ministry alongside you. Lord, help us in some small way to look into these mysteries as we come to this passage before us tonight, to gain instruction, to gain reverence, to search our hearts, to see if we are truly your followers, if we are like Peter with a great confession from the depths of our heart, or if we are in the end like Judas. God, help us to open our hearts, each one of us, and surrender to you, that in the end, in the day when we stand before you, we will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's the joy we look toward, Lord Jesus. We pray for every person that hears this message that you would work deep within their hearts that great converting work that only you can do. For we do pray these things believing in your power and your grace. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Last time uh, when we were together here in John chapter 6, we looked at verses 60 down through 71. We did not finish and get all the way down to verse 71. We basically stopped off at Peter's confession, verses 68 and 69. And we saw in this passage that there are three things. You have here the deserters, those people that have been traveling along with Jesus for quite some time, and then they leave him on this day. You have the dependent, those men, that small handful of men that had come to realize there was no other individual they could go to for the answers to life. And so there was nowhere else to go. The dependent. And that is not a negative thing. It is the most positive thing in all of life to come to the place where you utterly depend on Jesus Christ for your life here and for your eternity in the world to come. The deserters, the dependent, and then there is the devil. And we have yet to talk about this statement by Jesus that Judas is a devil. But let's read over the passage so we have it in mind, shall we? We'll begin again at verse 60 and read down to 71. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, this teaching on, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Many of his disciples, and there's still a large, large crowd, you remember from the feeding of the 5,000, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? It's interesting The Greek here is the word that sometimes we hear come over transliterated as scandalon. It's a Greek word that goes back in those times of classic Greek usage to basically a trap so that they would make these traps to trap animals and there would be this string or this cord and this rope and a stick attached in such a way that when the animal came up and began to fidget with the bait in the trap that he would pull on it, it would pull the string, the stick would fall and the animal would be caught in the trap. That is the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek. Does this offend you? It's almost like, does this trap you? Do you get boxed in by what I'm saying? Does this make you feel uncomfortable and trapped? Or it comes over to us, offend. And then he says, what if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? We talked last time about the idea that if they had a problem thinking that he was saying literally, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. In one sense, he's saying, I'm taking this body back to heaven. So mark it, you're misunderstanding me. In another sense, have you ever looked at it this way? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? That's saying, I'm going back to heaven to where I came from, a statement of the pre-incarnate Christ. But because we know that 
really, for the most part, these non-believers did not see him ascend back into heaven. What could he be saying? There could be a very real sense in which he is saying, I am going back to where I was before, where I came from, and the way he ascends back to where he came from is the way of the cross. So that he goes on from here to where they betray him, they take him out, they crucify him, from there he dies, he raises again, he appears, he disappears for 40 days, teaching, teaching, teaching. Then finally he goes back into heaven to where he came from. But the way that he went back there was the way of the cross. And that's the thing they didn't like, the narrowness of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That's the end of it for many of them. Then Jesus turned and he said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Now, the Greek here actually is structured in such a way as to anticipate a negative response. There are ways to phrase sentences where you're anticipating a positive response to say yes, and there are ways to anticipate a negative. And Jesus actually said effectively, You're not going to, are you? As if to say, you know, I know everything about you guys. I know how weak you are. I know how strange you are. I know how proud you are. I know how you fight about being the greatest. I know how ignorant you are after all this time. But one thing I do know is basically you're not like them. And that's why you're with me. You're not going also, are you? And the idea is no, Lord. And so that's the way he structured it. It's, a, it's actually a statement of confidence to them. And though it is at the same time heart-searching, and Simon Peter answered him, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It seems to the natural mind that the way you would come to know something and to to experience it and to be confident in it would be just the opposite of the way it is in Christianity. The human mind says, show me, show me again, show me again and show me right. Continue to show me and over a period of time I'll come to believe and I'll be confident. God says, no, just the opposite. You believe and then I will show you. It's amazing that Peter says, we have come to believe and know. Because they placed their faith in Christ's words. The way we come to confidence in God is to take his words. I believe it was Job said, his words were found and I did eat them. To take his words and bring them in and to cling to them, to hold fast to them, and to believe in faith in them, and then to find out that God never, ever lets us down. He never breaks even one of His promises. If we come to think He's broken one, and we're mad, we find out only with the passing of time how unfair we were, how ignorant and blind we were, and that in reality He hasn't broken even one. We believe, He shows, and He never lets us down. We have come to believe and to know, to experience what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's interesting, Peter actually said here, literally, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. What happens is that this is one of the only places that statement is made in the Bible. The only other place really is when a demon says it. When out of the mouth of a demon comes this confession of Jesus as God. You look at this and you find it translated here is effectively the same as Peter's other confession. On the road in Matthew 16 when he says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Caesarea, Philippi. But in reality, he didn't say the same thing. What he said is different. 
And as great as that statement is in Matthew, this in the Gospel of John is a different statement. It is, in fact, one of the high points of the entire Gospel because he's saying, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. And what that does is it would bring up in the minds of anyone around listening, in the Jewish mind, what you find over and over and over in the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. So here's Peter, imperfect. You know, this guy so quick to speak, so quick to express his feeling all the time, so often says the wrong thing, right? But here he says the right thing, and what he is doing is he is stretching out to the full extent of his belief and his faith to say, you are everything we could possibly gain and understand from your teaching and our experience. You're God. That's what he's saying. You're effectively the Holy One of Israel. You're Jehovah God. That's who you are. And that is so encouraging, as I told you last time, because here's a man that still had so many ignorant spots in his understanding. So out of this group of imperfect followers, they are as devout as they can possibly be. They are dedicated, they are dependent, and they are so different than Judas. So you look at this. Here is a turning point. Jesus says in verse 70, Jesus answered them. He said, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Shocking statement. John adds this. This is a footnote from John. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. John, now having lived to see the outworking of the whole thing, having been at the Last Supper, leaning his head on the chest of Jesus, close fellowship, seeing Judas, demon-possessed, betraying him, now he looks back and he understands what he was saying back then. He's a devil, he says. He's doing the devil's work. And so Jesus chose Judas. Why? It's amazing. This is a great turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's funny to track ministries, to see them start off, to see them grow. Sometimes they grow smaller. Sometimes they grow bigger and bigger and bigger and stay that way. Sometimes over the passing of years in the providence of God, they, they just fluctuate. Jesus' ministry here, follow this. He started out, you remember, at the River Jordan with the baptism of John. He began to preach and he gained a few followers. The following grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. So here they are being fed on the, the mountainside only the day before, maybe 30,000 people. There's this big group of followers that go along with him. You find that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, it says many saw his miracles and believed in his name in John 2. You find that when he began to gain his followers and John was over here baptizing and, and he has his people following him, he is really the announcer of Jesus, that suddenly there was a shift and so many people began to follow Jesus and be baptized by Jesus' disciples, it actually became embarrassing to John the Baptist. That's how many were following him. Then you remember in Samaria, the whole incident with the woman at the well? And how they all came out and they begged him to stay. There was this great following. In Galilee, as I said only the day before, thousands, multiplied thousands had flocked to hear him. But now, the tone is changing. Now as his message becomes sharper and clearer, as I said in the last message, that so many of these people, they love this person. They loved his person, they loved his works, but when it became clear what his words were saying, they didn't love that. And that is why they went away. And so he goes from this climbing popularity, this massive following, now he sort of hit a peak and going, and so many, almost all of them here at this point, left. Now he will have another big following when he goes in in his triumphant entry, cleanses the temple, and then he's heading toward the cross. But really in terms of a large following, that's basically dwindling down and almost over at this point. It's, it is a growing hatred from here of Jesus Christ and his message that culminates in the cross. 
With that in mind, we come to this statement. Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Have you ever wondered why? Why did he choose Judas? He knew what was in men. He knew that already. We read in verse 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. So why? I mean, why didn't he choose somebody else? Why couldn't he have chosen a twelfth that was right on the money? It's interesting to contemplate this and come up with some answers. I'll give you some reasons. You want to jot them down? I want to give you, and I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I've been wanting to answer this question for myself. I'll give you six answers, okay? Why did Jesus choose Judas? First of all, you have Judas among the twelve for this reason, to manifest the perfections of Jesus Christ. To manifest the perfections of Jesus Christ. You see, in John 17... Jesus says, Those that you gave me, Father, and his prayer to the Father, he says, Though that you gave me, I have kept, and I have not lost even one of them. And then do you remember what he says? Except, except the son of perdition. Why? That the scriptures might be fulfilled. So, what's the first answer as to why Jesus chose Judas. Well, because, you see, he says to the Father that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. None is lost except the one that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. As Spurgeon said, you can't be an apostate unless you're numbered with the apostles. So, the one is lost. Psalm 41.9 is a reference to that. There's so much in the Scriptures. You find... When we studied Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 7, we studied this, this statement where you read, Lo, I come to do your will. In the volume of the book, the Old Testament, in the volume of the book, it is written that I come to do your will. In the volume of the book, it is written. So, Jesus comes, and one of the things He has come to do is to fulfill scriptures. So... When he said, I do always those things that please the Father, my meat is to do the will of the Father, that included then coming to do the things that were written in the volume of the book, one of which was that a betrayer would be numbered with them and then he would be the betrayer and defect, even to the point of selling him for the price of so many pieces of silver. Now think about this. Why would this bring out the perfections of Jesus? Well, because here is a trial for Jesus that I think that we have no way of really grasping the magnitude of it because he knew the whole time he was a betrayer. So imagine, here is Jesus and he's out preaching and some people accept, some people reject, some mock, some scorn, some spit, whatever. And so there are always those times when he's wanting to get away with the twelve, right? Just to get away, Jesus departed, we read so many times. And he wants to get away from his, even the worst critics. But even in those times, guess who's still there? The one that he knows in the end will be worse than them all. Even in the times when he's going to get away from his rejectors, the ultimate rejector is still by his side. It's almost as though there is no rest. It's almost as though, as the Bible said, he was a man of constant sorrows, well acquainted with grief. It's almost as though one of the reasons that's true is Judas. A man of constant sorrow. I wake up, he's there. I minister all day. I turn around, I preach. People respond. They're converted. Their lives, their eternities changed. He's still there, and I know he's going to hell. And I know he doesn't love me. And he's involved, and he does all this stuff. You get the picture? The picture is this. He didn't hesitate to do what the Father demanded, which was to pick him, and in picking him, to bring the thorn into his own side. That would be all the way through his public ministry. In other words, for his entire public ministry, he had a man at his side who was a fake, and his ultimate betrayer, and doing the work of Satan so deeply that he called him a devil. That's a big trial. 
And so His perfection is manifested. And so is His love. So is His grace. You see, one of the things I see here is that we too have trials. And many of them come from people. Many of them come from people. Have you ever gone to the Lord and said, Lord, what is this person doing in my life? (laughs) I mean, Lord, I love you. Now, I would assume if you love me, people like this would not be allowed in my life. But you see, here's Jesus. Father, if you love me, why Judas? Well, I come in the volume of the book it has written to me. It's the will of God, you see. Why are some of these people in your life that just seem to be the thorn of all time in your side? And I'm not talking about your husband, women. Although, you know, if he's ungodly. But I'm not talking about your husband. I'm talking about people that, that you encounter in the ministry and they're strange. They have a strange vibe. But other than the strange vibe, they seem to fit. Everything else about them causes them to fit. It's the kind of thing where you just can't quite put your finger on it, you know? And you're going, Lord, I don't know why. Everybody loves this person, but why is this person in my life? You know, I mean, I say this, if there are no other reasons, perhaps it's for this. Perhaps it's to cultivate the perfections of Christ within you to see how far you will go in a maximum effort to let Christ live through you and love through you. As you see their face, you see their face right now in your mind? As you see them, as you encounter them, as you come across them, ask yourself before you fall into the snare of not liking them, uh, you know, all these things. Maybe they're put there by God on purpose to draw out the love and the perfections of God through you who maybe, if you're like me, have gone so much of your life not being as loving as you really could be. Don't ever forget, He knew us in eternity past to conform us in time and ultimately in eternity future into the image of Jesus Christ. And the work starts here in time. And sometimes He uses these trial people to draw that love and that grace out of you, the life of Christ in you. And so He is there to manifest the perfections of Jesus Christ. Secondly, another reason Judas Iscariot is here is it seems to me to manifest an impartial witness of the moral excellency of Jesus Christ. See, it's one thing to have these dedicated, dependent followers. Say, you're the God of Israel. You're the Holy One of Israel. We love you. We love your person. We love your works. And we love your words. Hard or not, we love them. It's one thing to have the most dedicated group. And... At this point, it's very small, right? It's one thing to have them sing the praises of Jesus Christ. It is another thing to have a man go along in the close proximity that Judas did for three years, come down to the end of it, do the work of the devil, betray him openly to the leaders of the nation he sells him, and then to have him turn around And when it's all said and done, what did Judas say? Do you remember? The Bible tells us that in the end, in Matthew 27, 4, Judas said this, I have betrayed what? Innocent blood. Out of the mouth of his greatest enemy came these words. I was with him for three years. I betrayed him. I became the greatest enemy he had. I betrayed him with a kiss. I did what no one else ever did, even to be called the son of perdition. I did the worst. And what I have to say before I die is I could not find one thing wrong with him. His own enemy and his worst confesses the excellency of Jesus Christ. And then a third reason. Judas is here to manifest, number three, the awfulness of sin. The awfulness of sin. See, think about it. Think of what Judas actually saw. Every day, every day, every day. Now remember, this guy's a thief. He's the treasurer. And he's a thief, the Bible tells us. So we know he loves money. He's greedy. Whatever else he is, he's greedy. To the point of hanging around Jesus and stealing money at the same time. 
imagine this guy. What he sees every day is nonstop demonstrations of God's love. He cares for the sick. The multitudes throng him. I remember before I came to Christ, there was a period of time in my life, right around 1970, 71, the Jesus Christ Superstar Rock Opera came out. Remember that? And I remember listening to that. That's all I listened to after a while for a period of time. I didn't listen to anything else. And I remember one point in the whole thing where they're singing, Won't you touch me? Heal me, Christ. Won't you touch me? You can heal me, Christ. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns around and he yells out, Heal yourselves! And I remember thinking, even as a blatant sinner, you know, smoking marijuana and listening to this Jesus Christ Superstar thing, I remember sitting there going, I don't think that's right. Heal yourselves? He never did that. That's the amazing thing. You see, we get pushed, right, in our fallenness to the point where we just can't take any more, and sometimes we explode. He never exploded. One person after the next, always dealing with this wonderful, gracious character. No pride, no anger, no lust, no impatience, never a foyer look. The multitudes are thronging. The woman comes, touches the hem of his garment. He doesn't turn around and do like so many of us do when we're busy and look for someone better to talk to. You know? We call that the foyer look, you know? When you're in, there, in the foyer and that person, that thorn is coming your way and they say hi to you and you're giving them the foyer look big time. Who else can I talk to? He never gave the foyer look. No impatience. No loss of self-control. Total selflessness, first to last. And that's what Judas watched every day, every day, every day, every day. You see, it's one thing to betray someone that is evil. That, you know, you walk away and you say, you know what, they deserve it. I know what's wrong, but they deserve it. It's another thing to betray such a one as Jesus Christ. You see how terrible sin is? That he could see that that he could experience that grace and that he could, in spite of all of that, betray him? That is the awfulness of sin, the terribleness of sin. Boyce, in his commentary, put it this way. He said, It was ordained that the fullness of redemption would expose something of the full horror of that sin for which the atonement on the cross was made. Moreover, he said, they are connected. For we will only begin to comprehend the height and the depth of divine love when we see something of the nature of the sin for which Christ's blood was poured out. In other words, I don't really begin to see the marvel of the cross until I see the horror of sin. I don't really begin to see the love that is there poured out with His blood until I see the wretchedness of the sin for which the blood is poured out. You understand? Here is Judas. And in the midst of all of his insincerity, he manifests the awfulness of sin because of the grace and the love that was manifested toward him, and he rejected Christ anyway. Let me take you to a fourth thought, a fourth reason that Judas was picked is that he stands there once and forever and for all as a solemn warning to all men, a solemn warning to all men. And here's the warning, that a person can experience the very closest proximity to Jesus Christ, the very closest Proximity to Jesus Christ, that a person can experience that and still not come to Him for salvation. You see, you can hear His teachings. You could, as Judas witnesses miracles, you can see changed lives all around you, even in your home, maybe even your spouse, who was perhaps to you the worst person on earth until they became truly born again, and now they're one of the most marvelous people you know. 
You can see all that. You can get that close to Jesus and still not be born again. You can be raised in a godly home. You can watch your friends, interact with them at school, see how wretched they are. See their response to the unhappiness in their life at home. You can go to your home. It's peaceful. It's godly. And you can grow up in the environment of a greenhouse of Christ's love, as it were, and still not know Him personally. Are you in that place? You think you're going to heaven because your parents are going? Nobody goes to heaven in groups. Nobody goes to heaven in families. You go to heaven when you have your own personal belief in Jesus Christ. So He stands for all time as a warning that you and I must personally personally believe in such a way that we connect with Him. We trust Him, we cling to we rely upon Him. We become one of those dependent disciples. Let me say this to you. Don't allow your proximity to Jesus to cheat you out of your own salvation. To assume, to assume that you're going to heaven because the Spirit of God has plowed your heart. Because you've worshipped with God's people to the point of tears even. Listen, you can come to the point of tears watching a well-done movie, right? I mean, some movies, you've got to get up and leave the room. You're just, you're going to lose it in front of everybody big time. A movie, for crying out loud. Well, how about the Spirit of God plowing your heart to the point of tears? You can come so close and repeatedly, and repeatedly, don't allow your nearness to Jesus to cheat you out of your own real faith in the Savior. To think I'm going to heaven because I've been so near. I've wept in the worship, you know. I've walked the aisle and cried. But yes, but have you given your heart to Him? Do you know Him? Is His life in you? Spurgeon put it this way. He said, You may be an eyewitness and yet perish as Judas did. You may be an eyewitness and yet be as lost as Pilate was. You may be an eyewitness and still hate Christ, even as Caiaphas, the high priest. He said, but if you become a faith witness, then you shall be included among those of whom it is written, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Such a faith view begets repentance and hope and love and brings salvation to every single soul that has it. You can be an eyewitness as so many were in the Bible and be lost, or you can be a faith witness, not even being able to see Him now. And yet, you love Him whom you have not seen, because you have seen Him in here. You've seen Him in your life. You've experienced Him. You can say with Peter that we have come to believe and to know, to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so it's a manifest solemn morning to all. Number five, why was Judas chosen by Jesus? Chosen by Jesus, number five, for, for this reason that he manifests the fact that we may expect hypocrisy among even the closest followers of Christ. Think about what it meant for the twelve to follow Jesus. You realize what it meant? You remember when Jesus came to Peter and James, John, those guys, they kind of had a business together, a fishing business and I think it was a good one too. You remember that Jesus said, Come and follow me, and I will make you, Jesus, the master of words and the moment, I will make you fishers of men. What did that mean? That means, guys, you know, you've had a great life. You know, you've done well. But I want to make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Leave the boats, let's go. To go where? Well, you know, the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. You know, you, you read in the Gospels that so often the people would go to their homes at night, and then you read this of Jesus, and he went to the Mount of Olives, slept in the garden. He had no place even to lay his head so often. What did it mean for these guys to follow him? It mean to leave everything. It means to leave certain and sure shelter for them. It means to be tired from the hard journeys. You know, one of the things that amazes you when you go to Israel is to see the distance that these guys went. It's one thing to sit with a little Bible. See how little this is? It's one thing to sit and read. And they went down to Jericho from Jerusalem. And that takes up about that much space. 
Oh, that's not bad. Sounds nice. And then to go to, to Israel and go to Jerusalem. And you're riding along on the tour bus, and they say, now today we're going to go from Jerusalem, we're going to make the journey down to Jericho. And you think, fine, probably take five minutes. And then you go on this road. You remember Jesus told the parable about the man who was attacked. He fell among thieves, and then the good Samaritan came along. So you go along these different kinds of roads. So here you are, you go down this road, and it's a winding road. You can go down the old road. It's a winding road. It winds and winds and winds. It's the kind of road you see a dead donkey on. We saw a dead donkey laying by the side of the road. It's one of those kind of things. And it winds and winds and winds. And you're thinking, man, it's going on forever. And then you see this big canyon and a monastery way in the distance. One of those things. Finally, you come around this turn. And way down there, you see this oasis. And it's Jericho. And you're thinking, hold it. They walk down here? How about when they were down by Jericho and went up to Jerusalem? They went up that road. And then you're thinking, but that's not all. Then you're thinking, well, what about Nazareth? It's way over there, and we're down here. You begin to realize how far they walked. In other words, when Jesus says, Come on, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Hold it. We love living by the water. Peter, you know, he had his house in Capernaum. You can go see it. Lord, I live on the water. I love it. You mean I'm going to have to walk on the dirt roads and be dusty every day and hot and sweaty and sticky and I can't jump in for a swim? Yes. Come on. So here's Judas. He is a part of all of this. And yet, he followed along so well that no one even suspected him for even a moment. And yet underneath it all, he was never a follower of Jesus. And so it is even in our day. You know, you look in the Bible, you find another example. If you think it's only Judas, it isn't that way. Can you turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4? I want to show you an example of someone who is so much like this. You would think that if the leader is really godly, if the movement is godly, if the work is godly, that these terror types would not be able to work their way into the center of it all. But Judas is the message. There will always be hypocrisy, hypocrites, phonies, even even in the inner circle of the finest ministries. And so you come to 2 Timothy 4.10, and who do you find here? Do you know the man? His name, don't ever forget it, is Demas. Demas. And here we read, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4.10. You know where Paul is in his life at that time? He is within days of his death. He is in the Mamertine prison in... Rome, wretched little place. Someone in our church here brought me a picture of it not long ago. It's about a 10 by 10 room, round room, dark, little hole in the top. They drop food down, very low ceiling, rat infested, filthy, filthy, filthy with the sewage of the city on the other side of the door, which they sometimes open to drown the prisoners when they want to get rid of them. That's where he is. He is at the end of his life. If ever he needed his close followers, it was then. And look at the timing. He says, 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas has forsaken me. Hold it, not now. Oh, yes. Demas has forsaken me. Why? He must have had a good reason. Here's his reason, having loved this present world. And he departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Some of the guys went in different directions. He left because he deserted me. He forsook me. Demas has forsaken me. So you say, well, wait, are you sure he was even really a real inner circle guy? Well, he shows up in Colossians 4.14. Paul writes there and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Two of my closest guys want to say hello. He writes in Philemon 24, Marcus, Aristarchus, Decus, Luke, my fellow laborers. He is numbered among Paul's esteemed companions. If I had a choice of, of spending my time on this earth with anybody, it would be Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a given, right? If I was told, sorry, you can't have it. Got a second choice? Whatever it is, you can have it. Well, of course, Paul the Apostle. Let me be one of his fellow laborers. Demas, an esteemed fellow laborer. 
he says, has forsaken me. Very strong verb. It's the idea of he left me hanging in the lurch. He deserted me when I needed him most. How could he do that? Because, you see, he wasn't real. Some thoughts on why he left. Maybe it was just the idea of deprivation. You know, the whole thing had gotten to him. Maybe it was the suffering and the difficulty. Or maybe it was in this reign of terror now with Nero. It was just getting too intense. And he sees, he's about to die. If I keep spending time with him, I'll probably end up dead too. And so he takes off. Except that we read the bottom line reason. Demas has forsaken me because he loved the present world. You see, he's a lot like Judas. Judas was greedy. He was a thief. He had the bag. Judas, in the end, you realize, followed Jesus for what he could get out of it. That's all. And when he found out that Jesus, you know, as things are looking worse and worse, when he found out he's not going to be the political superstar I thought he would be, when he found out he's not going to use his power to make us rich, I mean, imagine, here's this guy, he's taking the money and he's seeing the following gets bigger and bigger. Well, then there's more money, right? And he's thinking, man, at this rate, Swiss bank, I'll be the richest man on earth. I'll keep stashing it away. But then they begin to leave. They begin to hate him. And he starts to see the money go down. I'm not going to get rich. What does he do in the end? He gets the few pieces of filthy lucre, money, out of Jesus that he can, and he's done with it. You see, it got so tough. There was no hope. Jesus had pushed the outside limit of everything, the established religious world, and he knew he was going to die. And he got out, and he betrayed him for as much as he could get out of him. Why did Demas leave? Because he loved the present world, that's all. Van Savner put it this way. He said he loved the present world. This world, if a man love, he is the enemy of God. And the love of the Father is not in him. This world which hated my Lord and will hate us. This world which knows us not because it knew him not. This world whose wisdom is foolishness with God. This world that our Lord died to save. That's the world he loved. Demas has forsaken me. You see, Jesus had a deserter. And so did Paul. And so will you. If you stay in it for the long haul, if you're the real thing... If you are one of those really dependent on Jesus, though not perfect, with spots of ignorance in your own theology and understanding, as devout and dependent as you can possibly be, you will have a Demas or two or three or four in your life. Judas stands as a great, great witness that that will happen, and we need to pay attention to it. So when it comes, we're not caught off guard. Some of the stories I've heard in the ministry of people that have gotten so close to these names that you know and love and respect almost more than anyone, only to find that they just turn around and they stab them in the back. They've been in their homes. They've taken care of their kids. They turn around and they sue them. They betray them. They work ill to them. It's just sickening. And it happens. And if you're in the ministry and you're in it for Christ and His glory... Watch out, you will have a Demas or two or three or four or five. You will certainly have more than you would like to have. And so here is Judas. What a trial this guy must have been to Jesus. And yet he never slams him. I remember again in the Jesus Christ Superstar thing, I remember Judas singing, I have been spattered with innocent blood. I will be dragged through the slime and the mud. And they make you feel so sorry for Judas. Like, well, maybe he's a good guy after all. No, no, no. Jesus called him a devil because he was as closely aligned to Satan as he could possibly be the son of perdition. And he worked his way all the way in, and we may expect hypocrisy among the followers of Jesus in the same way down to this day. Here's the bottom line. You make sure you're not one. That's all. You make sure you're not one. And another thing, before I forget it, is to see that the disciples are so gracious as well. In an effort, I think, to live the Christ life, in an effort to look back and say, this guy, man, I mean, we were with him all the time, and all the while, he was planning on this. Oh! 
Wouldn't you think that when Mark took up his pen to write of these things, he would say, first of all, let me get something off my chest. I hate Judas, you know? And let me tell you a few things about him. No, these guys are so gracious. It's almost as if they don't say anything. And they just let Jesus and his words and the events themselves speak for themselves of the great evil of the whole matter but you don't see them get into slinging the mud. What an example they are to us. So we may expect this kind of hypocrisy among the followers of Jesus. Let's go to the last thing, number six. And what I see here is very simple, but I'm not so sure we have all learned it so well. And that is this. Judas manifests how different God's thoughts are from ours. I mean, would you pick him to be on the team? If you were Jesus and you knew, would you pick him? I mean, other than these things we've, we've looked at, if you being you were the head of that team, would you pick him? No, you wouldn't. But you see, it's just one more illustration of how radically different, how radically different God's ways are from ours. So that I look at this initially, and before I did this study and found the six things, I look at it and I say, a betrayer and the team, I have chosen you and one is a devil to me that says, that makes no sense at all, Lord. I mean, there's some things that are hard to understand. I cannot even begin to understand that. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. No sense. So do you see the illustration here? Do you see what it says, the lesson here? The lesson is, Because we see here that God did have some good reasons for having Judas there, that Jesus did have some good reasons for having him there, the lesson then is this, to learn to trust God in matters for which we can see utterly no reason for it. To me, that is one of the biggest lessons we need to learn in the Christian life. Lord, I cannot see any reason for this. I've tried and I can't. And then to go up to another level and to remember the situation with Judas and to humble ourselves and to say, Lord, truly, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. They are high above me. How can I attain to them? And then simply to humble ourselves and to trust him utterly, to trust him utterly and say, Lord, I don't see the reason, but obviously you do. And that's good enough for me. Jesus chose Judas. You understand a few of the reasons why now? I would encourage you to take these things and think on them again. To not just leave them here, but think on them again because there's so much here about real Christianity. Real, practical, day-by-day Christianity and laboring for the Lord. You see the, the incredible contrast right here? It's amazing to me that here is Peter and here is Judas. And here is Peter, full of imperfections. But one of the things we know about him is that we see him oftentimes making a fool of himself, if I could put it that way, putting his foot in his mouth. He's called all these things, you know, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth and all these things. We get a lot of laughs about Peter because we see so much of ourselves in him. I just wish I saw as much aggressiveness in myself as I see in the man's actions to be near to Jesus. Lord, when a stone and you're walking on the water, I don't know about them, but I, I'll walk on the water if you tell me to come because I want to be with you. Lord, they'll forsake you. I won't. He follows as far as he can before he forsakes. They were already gone, all of them. One thing about him, he wanted to be near Jesus. Imperfections, yes. But he leaned out and he stretched out to embrace the words of Christ in such a way as to pull him in and understand and experience everything about him he possibly could. That's why he said, you're the Holy One of God. Full of imperfections, but full of Christ. And then Judas, just as near as Peter. Isn't that something? And the one goes to heaven and the other goes to hell. Where are you going? If you drop dead tonight, where are you going? Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? If you don't have your own personal faith in Christ, you're not going to heaven. And one last thing, if you decide to turn from Christ, you've been companying with His people, you're growing up in Christian home, whatever, but now you're ready to go out and leave Him. Know this, 
There's one other thing Judah says to us, and that is the way of the backslider is hard. To turn away from God is to not have His favor. Listen to this. God blesses people to go forward into Christ, not to turn away from Him. A Sunday school teacher was instructing her seven-year-olds about the Exodus out of Egypt. And she explained how God delivered the Jews from the hands of Pharaoh by opening up the Red Sea to allow them to cross over. She then began to tell the children how some of the people began to grumble about their circumstances. Some of them, she said, even wanted to go back to Egypt. One small boy raised his hand and he said to the teacher, but they couldn't do that. He was so earnest. And she said, well, why? Can you explain to the class why you feel that way? And he simply replied, because God doesn't open the water when you want to go backward. He doesn't. And the way of the backslider is hard. And if you leave him, if you split from his people, if you turn away from his people and say they're just a bunch of religious nerds, no fun, this and that, he's not going to open the water for you. And you will go away to the hardest life you ever imagined possible. And it will be very, very difficult. And in the end, know this. Judas killed himself to get away from the judgment of his own conscience. But that will not free him from standing at the judgment of God at the great white throne to give account for what he did with his knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can leave, you can backslide, you can turn away, you can apostatize, you can do whatever you want to do to get away from the judgment of your own conscience. But you will not escape this. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. So, are you Peter? Imperfect, but full of Christ? Or are you Judas? So close, but completely without him. Only you know. And only you can make the move to open your heart and receive him, to be cleansed and forgiven, so that you go to heaven when you die. And so that you have Christ in you now, in the midst of your difficulties. You make your move and you embrace Christ personally. And do it today. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for salvation in Jesus. And thank you, Lord. This whole business of Judas is extremely distasteful. And yet it is so real and the warnings are so needed. For every person who has sat and listened to this message, Lord, open their heart to their own condition before you. For those of us, Lord, who know you, may we follow after the example of Peter and the other disciples and how godly they became, gracious, so Christ-like. And may you draw those that are at this point a Demas and they love the world, they don't love you. May you turn their heart even now to receive Christ, you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. We commit the salvation of each and every soul here into your hands, asking you to draw them, Father, that they would come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.